Good morning to you again, and uh, good to be here. Thank you so much, by the way, for your participation over the last uh, long weekend. Last week, as we went through this assessment, you were very, very good as a congregation in so many ways, and thank you so much, and I hope that the results of that um, time together and all that you invested in that will be uh, really good for this church. You see again on the screens this in it, not of it. Actually, the text up there is Romans chapter 12, but we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel because that's where we find a, a human being, one of the greatest human beings who have, who's ever lived on the planet. His name is Daniel who found that balance better than any of us can imagine of being in the world at the highest possible levels. The prime minister under several kings and two totally different kingdoms. He was the prime minister and was very much in the world and had a huge impact on that world, and yet he did not take on the values of pagan societies. He's a perfect example of somebody who knew how to be in the world but not of the world. And it so happens that this is the very prayer of Jesus. These are his words just before he died in John chapter 17. He prays that his followers would be in the world. He said, God, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want them to be in, but not of it. So that's our theme, and our topic is the book of Daniel. I'm going to ask you now in the lives of several people, what would you do? First is a picture that you, is a, an old picture. What would you do? And you have to put yourself back 2,000 years now. What would you do if you were required in a public ceremony to just take a little pinch of incense and go before a statue and drop that incense right before the statue and these are the words you say, Caesar is Lord. That was required. And if you did not do that, you would be killed. This is a picture of a man named Polycarp. He's in his 80s when this happens. He was one of the early bishops of the Christian church, and he was brought to trial, and he was asked to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar. They said, we don't want to kill you, old man. It's no big deal. Just take a little pinch and say, Jesus, or not Jesus, Caesar is Lord. And he said, for 80 and some years I have served him. He has done me no wrong I will not renounce Jesus. And they burned him to death. What would you do if you were this young woman? She's not young in this picture. Her name is Corrie Ten Boom. She was a woman who lived in, the 19, in 1940 in um, Holland. And her family believed that the Jewish people were God's chosen people. And when the decree, it was called the Alien Act, when the Act, the Alien Registration Law, given by the authorities, in this case the Nazi government of Germany, that if you had Jews, they had to register. And so the Gestapo came to her home, and the home of her father and her sister, and said, do you have Jews in your home? They did. They were hiding them behind a wall in the bedroom. I've been there. They said, no. What would you do? If you had to be like Corey Ten Boom, what would you do if you were this young man? This young man came from one of the highest families in all of Germany. His father was the top psychiatrist in Germany, perhaps the top psychiatrist in the entire world. Very prominent, brilliant, he's a genius. 
When his country, Germany, submitted to Nazism, he knew that this was evil. And he decided to take a stand against the government of his country, which was a very, very difficult thing to do. He was a pacifist. He believed that because of being a follower of Jesus Christ, he could not kill anyone. He refused to serve in the service, though he was drafted. And ultimately, he decided as a pacifist that he would participate in a plot to kill Adolf Hitler. It failed, and he was executed just a couple of months before the war ended. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What would you do if you lived in China? And you know what happened in China. They had the one-child policy. And you've had your one child. And your, your wife gets pregnant. And the government says, no, one. You have to abort that child. What would you do? What would you do if you lived in one of 52 countries in our world today in which you are not allowed by law to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the law of the land. It's on the books. You could be punished severely and perhaps even killed if you do so. What would you do? This is someone I knew. He was in our church down in, in um, Longmont. He was one of the people who started our Hispanic church down there. He decided he was illegal, and he decided that what God wanted him to do was to go back to Mexico, which he did with his family. He got into their little town, and the drug cartels came in. And they came in, and they went house to house, and they said, how much square footage do you have in your house? And you will pay us protection based on your square footage. And after they had done that, they took the next step. They said, um, what females do you have in your house? These are the nights that we will take them for sex. So we can't go there. And so the man I knew who started our church there, he and his friends formed a vigilante group. They took up arms against the drug cartels. And Eduardo was killed. We did his funeral in our church. What would you do? Well, those are only a few illustrations, but these are real people. And I could go on and on with real stories. What would you do? What would you do when a lawfully constituted government or authority demands that you do something expressly forbidden by God? Or... What do you do if a duly constituted authority forbids you to do something expressly commanded by God? What do you do? Well, our text of Scripture today, Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see some people who had to face that very situation. And we're going to learn today, hopefully, from these three. Their real names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But we know them best as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Dan Daniel chapter 3. If you have a Bible, please turn with me there. And we're going to see this story, one of the great stories of the Bible. 
But this is something that really happened because these are real people like we are who had to face a real situation as we will have to face or have faced in our lifetime. A trial by fire. Now this text of scripture is set during the time of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar ruled the Babylonian kingdom from around 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. He is the greatest king of one of the greatest empires in the history of the world, the Babylonian Empire. And here's how the passage begins. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now the events that take place here, we don't know. It's not dated as most of the chapters in Daniel are dated. But many people believe that this took place some 20 years after Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity in 605. So it's likely that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all somewhere in their 30s when this event takes place. They are not young men. These are people who have grown into their positions. They're very highly respected in the government of Babylon. And Daniel is at the upper echelons. He's a high-level bureaucrat in the government of Babylon. Now, remember back in the previous chapter? The king had a dream. And in that dream, he, he forgot his dream. And Daniel, remember, because of God's help, told Daniel what his dream was and interpreted it. But in that dream, the, the, the statue in his dream had a head of gold. And then when Daniel interpreted that dream for God, Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, are the head of gold. And guess what happened? It went to his head. And so now he says, head of gold, no big deal. I'm going to make a whole statue of gold representing me and the God after whom I'm named, Nabu. That's the main Babylonian God. He's named after Nabu, Nebuchadnezzar. So he makes a, goal, a, a statue, and here are the dimensions. These dimensions, by the way, are identical to the Washington Monument. Identical. One to ten. One to ten. This one is only 90 feet high. I think it's 555 feet high in Washington, but it's the same dimensions. So he builds this long, thin statue that represents himself. And he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, bureaucrats, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So there are seven levels of, of bureaucracy here in his government that he identifies. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, whoops, go back here, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. Now remember, the Babylonian nation was comprised of people who had been defeated from all over the place, including Jewish people who spoke a variety of languages. 
So they had to translate everything into multiple languages. And this is what they said. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So that's the command. As you know, there are many Jewish people in the realm. Jewish people are expressly forbidden in the second commandment to bow down to any kind of idol like this. They knew that. Where are the Jewish people? We don't know. They're scattered throughout the kingdom. But we do know that there are at least four of them that are at high levels in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. One of the questions you will probably ask if you look through this chapter is, where is Daniel? Well, remember, this event takes place in a place, the plain of Dura, at a specific time. And Daniel, being a very high-level bureaucrat, is probably somewhere else in the kingdom doing kingdom business. He's not there when this particular event takes place. But these three comrades of Daniel, they are there. And so here's the decree, politics as usual. What, what happens in politics, in our country, in every country? You have egomania takes place. I remember looking at, uh, reading an article in People magazine about someone had served in the White House with multiple presidents. And the question they were asked is, um, what do all these presidents have in common? And I remember his comment. He said, they all have big egos. Well, duh. Um, you don't usually get to a position like that without a rather large ego. And not only do you have an expansive ego, there's civic pride. Um, there was this great statue. Remember, this is the superpower of the world at the time. And Nebuchadnezzar's the, the top leader in the world, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And so they wanted, he forced everyone to submit to him. And there was religious a cohesion behind his, his decree for everyone to bow down before this statue. And those who didn't would be punished. And if you look at the Bible from cover to cover, one of the things that you will discover is that um, we are commanded as Christians to submit to governing authorities. It's a command that's very clear throughout all the Bible, and it's particularly clear in the New Testament. Now, you might say to you, ask me, well, what does submission to a government mean? It's very easy. God has told us explicitly what it means. It means four things, and they all rhyme. There are four things the Bible says we must do as Christians in our submission to our government, and here they are. The first thing is we are to obey. This is Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, I don't know how you can get any clearer than that. But who are the governing authorities when this is written? you know? Nero. He's an idiot. <laughs> He's not only an idiot, he is evil. 
And he is not only evil, he's an egomaniac. And he's not only an egomaniac. Do you know that Nero had five spouses, two of them were male. He had legal marriages that were same-sex marriages. Both of them, he went on extensive honeymoons paid for by government funds. Both of them. We know that. The history is clear. Porphyry and Sporus. These are the governing authorities to which the Apostle Paul said we are to submit. Where did they come up with it? And then, God had the audacity to say, you're not only supposed to obey, you must pay. Here's what he said. I didn't write this. This is Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Do you realize from that text of Scripture, God has given us one of the greatest gifts he's ever given a Christian? Because what if God said, you need to submit to the government to the percentage that you think your government is, uh, is legal and you agree with them? I think 10% of our government right now is, is legal. I'm only going to pay 10% of my taxes. No, you don't do that. Most of our taxes for most countries in the history of the world are paid to governments that are evil. And God said, do it. If the government exacts taxes, you pay them. That's what it means to submit to the government. Because, and why? God says, because I put them there. These authorities have been put in their position by me. Obey, pay, and pray. Here's what God says. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We're to pray. We're supposed to pray for our authorities, whether we like them or not. Why? Because God said so. And then the, third, the fourth one, you might think, where did you come up with that crazy word? L.A. Do you know what it means? Here's the definition of L.A. To subdue or reduce in intensity or severity or to make quiet. Listen to the words of God. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. God said, why do you submit? Part of you, you submit so that you will silence the talk of foolish people who will, throughout all of history, use scapegoats, including Christians, wrongfully. How do you allay or silence them? 
Live such godly lives that when they throw the mud at you, it won't stick because it's a bunch of baloney. God says, this is what submission to a government looks like. You obey its laws. You pay your taxes. You pray that God may allow you the privilege of living a peaceable life. And you allay their false accusations by living a godly life. Submit yourselves for God's sake to authorities. That's what God said. Um, but now the plot is going to thicken. Because now the accusations are going to be directed at these three Hebrew men. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Now, this, remember, this is an inside job. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are among the bureaucrats of the government. The astrologers here are advisors to the king, and they're the ones who came forward, and they denounced the Jews. This is one of the first times in the Bible, historically, that we find anti-Semitism. It's going to grow to a fever pitch by the time of the book of Esther, not many years hence. But here, for the first time, you see anti-Semitism raise its ugly head, and it's been raising that head for all of human history since. They don't like these Jews. Why? Well, they don't like them for one reason, because they're different. They don't like these people because Jews and, and pagans don't mix. They don't follow our laws. They don't bow down to idols. And besides, they're the ones who have gotten to the highest levels of the bureaucracy, higher than us. They're the ones who were the valedictorians of the class. They're the ones who got the A's when we got the B's. We don't like these people. We're jealous. So they didn't like them. And so, with all the flattering garbage you can imagine, they say, Oh, king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O oh, king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship the foot will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither, neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. They don't follow our laws. Now, they hate these people. There's no good reason except that maybe they're jealous or maybe because they're living such godly lives that their, their godliness is exposing the ungodliness of these astrologers and other leaders. We don't know. But they hate their guts and they want them dead. We don't usually talk about this much, but Jesus said this. Jesus said that you will be hated. This is Matthew chapter 10, not this passage on the screens. All men will hate you because of me. This is Luke chapter 7. Blessed are you when men hate you. This is John 3. Everyone who does evil hates the light 
And here's John 15. All of these are from Jesus. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. That's pretty strong stuff. There's a book I've referred to in the past here. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. It was, built, it was um, written in 2013. And one of its chapters is entitled, Hated. And to, to um, uh, give statistics, because this is written by a journalist, journalist pastor whose specialty is statistics. And they did a poll of more than 1,000 university professors. That's a huge poll. And they were asked the question, which of the following groups do you have negative feelings towards? 3% said they had negative feelings toward Jews. 22% said they had negative feelings toward Muslims. 53% said they had, had, had negative feelings toward evangelical Christians. More than 50% of every university professor in America, more than 50% of them, the group that they hate the most today are evangelical Christians. That's us. It is nothing has changed from the time of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to our day. And it's simply what Jesus said it would be. Now, what do you do with that? Well, Here's what Timothy wrote. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't like that verse at all. But here's what Peter said you do about it. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. I remember last week, uh, Anna, uh, Anna Bailey, she remembered what she read. It talked, we're, we're not from this world. Our major citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens of the U.S., but our major citizenship is in heaven. You're, you're aliens. I, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Here's the, here's the antidote. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the answer to hatred is not to, do, to give back in kind. The answer is to fight hatred with goodness. And so that's what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are going to do. The accusations are trash. They come from their comrades who hate them, probably because they're jealous. And now you face the confrontation. Here's how it goes. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, I'll give you a chance. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, You'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? 
they do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. Now look at their reply. It's stunning. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, live forever. No, no, there's no flattery. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We will not. This is what you would call an act of civil disobedience. And in the Holy Scriptures, we have six very clear instances of civil disobedience. Here they are on, on the screens. We don't have time to go into each one of them. But in, in each case, you had authorities, governing authorities or religious authorities, duly constituted, that issue commands to do something that God has prohibited or prohibit people from doing something that God has commanded. So in the case of the Hebrew midwives, they were commanded by the Pharaoh to kill the baby boys when they were born. In the case of Rahab, she was asked to disclose the, 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 the presence of the Jewish spies who she had hid in her home. In the case of the three Hebrews, they were asked to bow down before a statue of uh, this golden statue. In the case of Daniel, Daniel was prohibited by King Darius to pray to God, the living God. In the case of the Sanhedrin, they said, stop preaching about Jesus. They said, you think that's what we should do? Have at it. But we will obey God rather than man. Now remember, the first principle was Christians submit to our government, but there's an adjoining principle, number two. We are sometimes called by God to disobey our government. And you might wonder when. It seems to me from this six examples, and there are several others in the Bible, the principle is crystal clear. It's summarized by R.C. Sproul in the following way. If the civil authorities command something that God forbids or forbid something that God commands, we must disobey. It would be the same in your home. I, I know no one here at First Baptist would ever do this, but if, for example, a parent would say to a child, I want you to do this, something that you know before God is wrong. There are times when, of course, it's never happened here, thankfully, but when a child needs to disobey a parent. It's not often. God's command is children obey your parents. But is there a limit to that? Yes, there is. The limit is when a parent in authority asks you to do something that God has prohibited or prohibits you from doing something that God has commanded. Um, in a marriage, I've seen this in many marriages, where one spouse says to the other, I want you to, here's the deal, I'm cheating on our taxes because I'd like to keep more of that cash for us. We can go on a vacation. And you say, no, can't do that. No, I, I know we're in this together, but 
No, I will not disobey the clear commands of God in order to submit to an authority. I won't do that. Those are the boundaries. And it sometimes happens, as these people had to do that I began with today. And now you know what happens. God delivers them. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And by the way, that is a, that's hyperbole. Let's say it was 100 degrees, and now I want it to be 700. It's, it's impossible. That's, a, that's an expression that means as hot as you possibly can make it. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot, the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into a blazing furnace. It was probably a, a smelting furnace, which they used... Um, bellows to heat it up hotter and hotter. There's an opening in the top and openings on the sides. And they dumped them in there. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. Hey, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Many Bible commentators believe that the fourth person in the furnace was a pre-incarnate appearance on earth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not a son of the gods. He was the son of God. And he's in there with them. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not burned their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Obviously, a miraculous deliverance. I don't like this passage. And here's a reason I don't like it. Because many times God doesn't do this. He didn't do it for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <coughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer got killed. He didn't do it for Polycarp. Polycarp got burned at the stake. He didn't do it for Corey Ten Boom's father and her sister, both of whom died. God can do this. And he sometimes does, but he doesn't always. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Hebrews chapter 11. It's the honor roll of faith. And in the first part of Hebrews chapter 11, you have all these people who put their faith in the living God and God showed himself to be powerful and gave them miraculous de uh, deliverances. But toward the end of the passage, we find these words. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they may gain a better resurrection. 
Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated, and the greatest line in the whole Bible, the world is not worthy of them. They wandered around in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes of the ground. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the heroes of faith are those for whom God comes through in answer to their prayers. The superheroes of faith are those for whom God doesn't come through until eternity. This passage shows us there are heroes of faith and there are superheroes of faith. People of whom the world is not worthy. We are not worthy to stand in the presence of Betsy Ten Boom. We are not worthy to stand in the presence of Polycarp. We're not worthy. Because these people did not get what thousands, or John the Baptist, who prayed, and what did he get? He lost his head. These are the superheroes of faith. That's what God says. And so the truth for all of us is, we pray for God's deliverance. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego experience God's provision, His deliverance. But many do not. And they are usually the superheroes of faith. Be careful of putting God in some kind of box that we create. God's Word won't allow it. And so what happens? It all ends with worship. Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command. He said, they disobeyed me and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Well, how does it all end? I don't know if you noticed, but the, um, the word worship actually appears in this chapter 11 times. It's really a chapter about worship. And worship involves two things, standing and falling down. It begins with standing idols. We live in a society in which we have as a society erected all kinds of idols. Money, sports, entertainment, politics, pleasure, ego, stuff. And one of the great tasks of us is that we are able to discern the idols, the standing idols of our, of our culture. And we do not fall down before these idols, even though our culture submits blindly to these idols all the time. That's what people... We take a stand against idolatry, whether the idolatry be the idolatry of money or politics or education, you name it. Many things we can idolize and worship in this life. We take a stand against that. And we're willing, as we take our stand, to take a fall for what we believe. We're willing, just like they were willing to do. Because we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who were willing to take the fall, they were thrown into the fiery furnace, found themselves standing tall with Jesus. And they fall down before him. We sang this morning about I can only imagine. What if we saw him? Would you stand tall or on your knees fall? Both are acts of worship, actually. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a noble purpose as Christians in this world to submit to governments as God has put authorities over us in many spheres. But there's a limit because our ultimate allegiance is to the living God. And we follow him first and foremost. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the, these people who have gone before us with incredible courage, conviction, strength. They were so, such marvelous examples for us. Thank you for telling us their story. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to learn from them as we walk with Jesus. And at his feet we fall. It's in his name we pray.